The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. What are the most successful change leaders of today doing to deliver great results? Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program is produced by the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown University. We'll explore the inner game of transformational leadership, sharing insights from renowned leaders and faculty from our world-class leadership and coaching programs. Now, from Georgetown University, here is Kate Ebner. Welcome to Inside Transformational Leadership. My name is Beth Greenland, and I'm a faculty member with Georgetown's Institute for Transformational Leadership. Today, I'm delighted to be talking with Dr. Edgar Schein, author, thought leader, and truly an icon in the consulting and organization development profession. Dr. Schein is the Sloan Fellows Professor Emeritus at the MIT Sloan School of Management, where he's taught from the mid-50s to 2005. During that time, he wrote numerous books on organization culture and leadership, process consultation, and what causes businesses to succeed and to fail. He is the 2012 recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Leadership Association and the 2015 recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Organization Development Network. Dr. Schein continues to consult, and he recently has published two books on the social and psychological dynamics that make helping others and being helped so very challenging. His most recent book is Humble Inquiry, The Gentle Art of Asking Instead of Telling. Dr. Schein, welcome. It's an honor to have you on the show. Delighted to be here. Thank you. I wonder if you might begin by telling us about Humble Inquiry. You have decades of experience consulting with multinational corporations and studying those that succeed and those that fail. So with all of that perspective, all of that experience, why this book? Well, I think the real trigger to this book is an observation that I've been making over and over again in companies uh, for example, in a power company that I was consulting with, we would run focus groups of employees and ask them what their relationship was around safety issues with uh, stuff that they would discover during their workday. And I would learn over and over again that a, a significant number of employees would say, well, I see a problem but when I try to tell my boss about it, I discover that he's not really interested, or maybe I've talked to him about safety problems I've observed some other time, and he said, don't bother me or don't bring me problems unless uh, you have a solution, or in various ways cuts me off. So the real target of this book is bosses who fail to ask subordinates about what's really going on. 
And in that process, they lose valuable information, safety problems don't get fixed, quality problems don't get identified, all because the boss considers himself to be someone who already knows all he needs to know, and uh, subordinates are supposed to be told stuff rather than ever to be asked any questions. That's the nub of it. Well, that's particularly scary when you think about a power plant, you know, <laughs> really, <laughs> that's alarming. Um, so so the, then the idea of the boss creating an environment so that people that see problems feel comfortable with, with raising those problems and raising the issues and don't feel like they'll be shut down. Am I getting that right? You're getting it right, and... I feel that it's, it's kind of a reflection of the, the culture of, of U.S. management, that when you're a boss, that entitles you to tell others what to do rather than listen to what they might have to tell you. So the real target is, is the hierarchical problem that the minute we, we rise in the hierarchy, we become more of a person who tells and less of a person who asks. Yeah, and, you know, you think about this idea of humble inquiry. The word humble is such an interesting word. And as you see, you know, we see leaders, and there are certain examples today in the political scene that seem to be anything but humble. So, so I'm curious about that. How do you help people learn how to be humble and ask rather than tell? Well, the the same logic applies. Uh, my telling them to be humble doesn't work either. <laughs> what what has to happen, and I've seen it happen more and more as the world becomes a more complex place, is that bosses discover that at some point they don't know enough to really tell others what to do. And when they discover that the problem is more complicated than they thought it was, and that, in fact, their subordinates have some of the key items of information, then they discover that they have to ask the subordinates for those bits of information. They have to actually seek the help of the subordinate in order to function. Then, automatically, they become humble. But what drives them is not somebody saying you ought to be more humble. What drives them is the recognition that unless they treat their subordinates as real sources of information and as real potential helpers, they won't get their own job done. So they have to, they have, you say they learn to be humble because they see, they have to have that realization themselves that unless they create a safe environment, then the, their subordinates won't give them the information they need. So they're really acting in their best interest to be humble inquirers. Is that right? Exactly. And one, one reason companies uh, do better or worse is the degree to which uh, the managers and leaders in those companies recognize their dependence upon subordinates and start with the presumption that without the subordinates, I as a manager can't succeed, and therefore I better develop a relationship with them. So I le- it, it all leads to the idea that the relationship 
between a manager and the subordinates has to become a somewhat more personal relationship than mm-hmm. sort of the traditional uh, officious uh, uh, distance relationship that, that we often attribute to hierarchical relationships. It's got to get more personal. Hmm. Well, that sounds, you know, on the one hand, um, wonderful that the relationship would be more personal, and yet so many times we hear you know, there should be a boundary between um, professional relationships and personal relationships in the office. So how do you manage that boundary, keeping the relationship professional and yet making it safe for folks to feel like they're heard? I think we confuse a personal relationship with being intimate with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, having Having a relationship that implies that you're not a human resource, you're an actual human being who works for me. Uh, you know, this idea of human resources is a terrible word because that creates inter- interpersonal distance where there doesn't have to be any. What, what I mean by a, a working relationship that's personal is that I recognize that each of my subordinates is a total human being. I get to know their name. I discover, you know, that they actually do know stuff. Uh, the, the place where you can see this most clearly is in the change in, for example, the operating rooms of today. The old relationship between the chief surgeon who treats the nurses and all the techs in the OR uh, as just slaves and helpers is long gone. The surgeon today, the good surgeon, gets to know the the nurses and the techs who are working with him as individual people. And I'm suggesting that that same kind of personal knowledge of each other uh, is, is generally more necessary in all kinds of work relationships, not just in the hothouse of the... Uh, of the OR where it's it's clear to the surgeon that he has to get to know them uh, but there are too many bosses out there who who don't realize that uh, well let, let me link this to another thing I get a lot of requests these days for engagement surveys people leaders say my employees aren't engaged enough and when you look into that, you discover they're not engaged enough because they're not treated as human beings. And it's, it's a simple matter as that. Uh, and how, how we got this way is through this notion of hierarchy uh, entitles you to something rather than just being a different kind of job. Mm, yeah. So, so this idea of humble inquiry, then, to just drill into it a little bit, Dr. Shine. So what exactly would that look like, to be a humble inquirer? To be a humble inquirer is, is not a particularly or a particular technique or a, a set of, of questions that you have to learn. I think it's discovering that you don't know something and you get curious about it and you ask questions to which you don't already know the answer. So when uh, I get a phone call from uh, a manager who says, um, 
Dr. Shine, would you recommend a uh, a culture survey for my organization because I like to study the culture of it? Uh, I could say sure, and uh, that would not be humble inquiry. Humble inquiry would be for me to say with honest conviction, uh, well, I hear you, but um, can you tell me a little bit more about why you think uh, you would like to do a culture survey? What's on your mind? What's worrying you? Uh, These are questions that I don't know the answer to, and they're the ones that have to be asked before Mm -hmm. I respond with either a... uh, Yes, I can do that, uh, or some other version of uh, getting on board before I really know what I'm getting into. So asking questions to understand really what's going on. And, you know, I'm I'm struck by um, the idea of leaders needing to acknowledge that they don't know or they don't have the answers, which sounds like a position of vulnerability for leaders. You know, I think as, as leaders, we don't like to imagine that we don't know or used to knowing. So how, how do we manage that vulnerability? I think the, the how-to question is the one that's most difficult to answer because, as I said before, the, the leader won't discover his or her need for the help of the subordinates until they hit a problem that they can't solve. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the how-to, I think, comes naturally, and the vulnerability becomes a, a natural reality when a manager or a leader discovers that they really don't know what to do next. And I've I found that that is an uncomfortable feeling but it's a reality that sooner or later most of us in the complicated world we live in encounter and then realize, oh, okay, uh, I am dependent on others. That does make me vulnerable, and I discover I just have to live with it. It's, it's an insight that people have. It's not something that you can make them feel. Hmm. Hmm. So, um, as you, you, I imagine you spend a good deal of time talking with people about um, developing this um, opportunity to be curious, um, are there any particular kinds of ways to ask questions or kinds of approaches to inquiry? I'm hearing curiosity. I'm hearing not knowing. I'm hearing a deep commitment to the relationship building. Are there other aspects that are elements of this humble inquiry? In, in the book, I describe uh, the, the a typology of questions. Pure, humble inquiry would be, tell me more, uh, what, what's on your mind, uh, what's worrying you. Truly open-ended questions where I'm completely interested in the other person's story and uh, what they have to tell me. What, what we often fail to do is to stay at that level and immediately jump into what I call diagnostic questions. Hmm. That would be a question that says, uh, well, why do you think this is happening? Uh, uh, why do you think you need this survey? Uh, or what have you done so far about it 
where I'm asking for actual action items, or have you thought about uh, doing interviews instead of doing a survey, where I'm actually beginning to, to make a suggestion, where the diagnostic question becomes a suggestive question. So there's a kind of a dimension from just tell me more to a variety of why questions to a variety of have you thought of questions, which are de facto telling the person what they might or should have done rather than staying in the pure, humble inquiry mode. Uh, yeah, I like to call that advice in disguise. That, uh, advice that in not... disguise. It's very, very accurate. Yeah, so, so the, a real distinction then between really being curious and really not knowing and knowing you don't know versus kind of pretending you don't know and asking questions that are steering the client or steering the individual along. Is that close? That is absolutely on target, and I think most of us, are not aware of how often we do just advise in disguise rather than uh, allowing our genuine curiosity uh, to to hold the day. Uh, I, I like this phrase of accessing your ignorance. Huh. I think one of the things we should practice is what is it I don't know in this situation rather than starting with, well, here's what I think is going on and going on from there. You know, as you, as you say that, I'm thinking about um, adult development theory. I'm thinking about um, the kind of um, process we go through that we become more and more comfortable as we ha- have more experience in saying we don't know. So are you, are you saying the same thing, that this is perhaps easier for people later in their careers, or are you seeing that, that younger people also can become comfortable in admitting that they don't know everything and that they're dependent on those that report to them. I think uh, it's not so much related to age as uh, related to being more situationally aware. I think we should talk a little bit about situational awareness and uh, what, what that means uh, in, our, in our daily life uh, as we continue the conversation. Great. Well, we'll be back in a a little while. We'll be taking a break in just a minute. Uh, We'll come back and we'll talk about situational awareness. Um, I also want to hear your advice on um, what leaders could do who want to build a culture of inquiry in their organizations. But we'll pick that up together after the break. Thanks so much, Dr. Sean. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. 
We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF Certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email ITLprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome back. I'm Beth Greenland, your guest host, and we're talking with Dr. Edgar Schein about the crucial leadership commitment and skill in humble inquiry. Before the break, we were talking about uh, the challenge for leaders of truly being humble and asking curious questions. And Dr. Shine, you wanted to speak about this idea of situational awareness. What, what are you thinking of there? I think this concept comes primarily out of the field of, uh, of safety. I had referred earlier to uh, the power company, uh, and linking that also to uh, patient safety in, in our healthcare system, uh, I think we found that when accidents happen or when bad things happen to people, almost always there are others who saw things or knew things that would have, had they spoken up, uh, forewarned us that something. Uh, was not right in the equipment or that some drugs had been mixed up or something else was was wrong. Mm -hmm. So in the safety field, they talk a lot about everyone from the boss to all the subordinates to everyone who has anything to do with the situation should always be thinking in terms of what is going on right now uh, and even asking the question, what is different today? Uh, what What is going on that I may not have noticed? Because that kind of awareness, particularly to things that are different, is often uh, necessary to detecting the one or two things that may be the hazard in the situation, and that if we identify them early, we can avoid and uh, and be more safe. Uh, the, the easiest example is when we're driving along. The worst thing that can happen when we're driving is not only the, the actual texting, which is bad enough for being on the phone, but drifting into a fantasy or, or some kind of... Uh, notion of what we where we're going what we're thinking about and not noticing road conditions or what the other drivers are doing 
and and therefore beginning to maybe drift across a lane or fall asleep or any of a number of things that lead to to a terrible consequence. So maybe driving is is the best place to think about situational awareness uh, in relation to the safety problem. Mm. Really needing to be present and paying attention. But, you know, I'm also thinking... To, to imagine that the person who sees the problem, so let's imagine it's a person who sees a challenge and then they have to tell their boss, hey, you made a mistake. Hey, this is wrong. Hey, you forgot something. So it sounds like um, there's a risk to that person of speaking up because it might um, be damaged the senior person's status or it might come across as uh, belittling. So how, how can leaders... Um, I guess, welcome that feedback or let people know that they welcome that feedback. I, I think that's, that's the $64 question. And I think it's an attitude issue rather than a how-to issue. Uh, let, me, let me take the, the surgeon as an example. Uh, my, my son-in-law, who is an orthopedic surgeon, uh, doing very difficult back operations, uh, when I ask him, you know, how do you make sure that if you're about to make a mistake, uh, one of the nurses or techs or the other doctors uh, in the room will tell you before you make the mistake? And his answer to that is very interesting. He says, well, uh, first of all, uh, I, I only accept on my team people who I think are competent. That's a perfectly legitimate boss function. You don't hire subordinates uh, or work with people who you have doubts about in terms of are they competent. But once, once I know who they are, he said, well, then I take them out to lunch. Now, in that simple statement is a whole set of attitudes, which I'm saying if bosses don't develop them, they're not going to get the kind of situational awareness from their subordinates or the feedback from their subordinates they're looking for because the act of eating together, it temporarily equates their status. It tells the subordinates, you know, I recognize you as a human being. I'll break bread with you. That That's the most simple how-to. Uh, it's It's personalizing. So then I discover, by the way, that sometimes he doesn't have access to the team before the actual operation because of turnover and um, and shortages. So sometimes the people who show up in the OR are actually strangers. And so now does, does is he stuck with having to just be the, the boss to tell them what to do? And so I asked him about that, and he said, well, if I'm dealing with with strangers, I use the checklist, which we have to go through before the OR, uh, before the operation. And I ask the the chief nurse who's going to administer the checklist to slow it down, maintain eye contact for each item on the checklist, uh, I ask, is there anyone who has any comments on this? Are we all comfortable with it? So he actually takes the few minutes 
that it takes to go through the checklist to build that personal sense with each of the other members of the team, which kind of implies that he wants them there, he respects them, and if they have anything to say, he hopes that they will speak up. It's the, it's the attitude and the behavior that flows from the attitude that creates, even in those first few minutes, a more personal relationships. So your son-in-law is very aware that by creating a safe environment for people to speak up, he's really helping himself and certainly supporting patient safety by making exactly. sure that people feel comfortable in raising, raising issues as they see them. Exactly. And he would be very careful to train himself to say thank you for any item of information, even if it might not be all that relevant, because what he's trying to reinforce is speaking up behavior. Mm. Speaking up behavior. So leaders have that opportunity to be mindful of how are they, how are we encouraging speaking up behavior? How are we encouraging or discouraging speaking up behavior in our organizations, right? Because if when people speak up, they get in trouble, they get chastised, they're, you know, they, something, something adverse happens, that would certainly shut people down very quickly. It, it links to to a very key point that I get often asked about with, with culture. People say, how does a leader build a culture? And the answer is, is really very simple. The, the leader has all the tools necessary, namely his own behavior, what he rewards and what he punishes, what gets him excited and what gets him upset, his, his own daily behavior over a period of time, is observed and reacted to by his subordinates, and that's really what builds culture. So rewarding the kind of behavior you want, namely whenever subordinates speak up, you react positively to that, that will slowly build a culture of a relationship between them that maximizes information flowing upward. So it sounds like it's important for leaders to be very, very self-aware as, as we go forward with our teams. What practices can you suggest to leaders to help us be more self-aware or uh, be, more, be more thoughtful about how we are interacting with the folks that report to us? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's difficult because the kind of leader who isn't self-aware is also not going to show up at a workshop on how to become self-aware. <laughs> so here, here is one thing that my friends who are in, in organization development and inside the organizations uh, and see this problem, uh, what one thing they do is they sneak a copy of Humble Inquiry, the book, onto the leader's desk and say, you might want to look at this. <laughs> and surprisingly, it, it often works because the leader just has never thought about these, these issues. Or another uh, 
way that I've heard people do it. They walk into the leader's office, and I've said that a lot of this is is a matter of how you personalize the relationship. Well, the the subordinate with insight could, for example, wander over to the leader's desk or in the office, identify something like a picture, uh, and say, oh, uh, is this your family? In other words, ask the boss a personal question about the picture that's on his desk. Then, unless the boss wants to be rude and wants to maintain, you know, real professional distance, that question opens the door to the realization on the part of the leader that, well, yeah, that is my family, that's my wife and my kids. And right off the bat, they are in a more personal relationship that would make it easier then for the subordinate to speak up. So there's, you can think of it almost as can the subordinate at times seduce the leader into being more personal to get the leader off their, their high soapbox uh, always telling and give them an opportunity to be more personal. Uh, I don't recommend that because uh, only the subordinate knows whether or not they're dealing with a boss for whom something like this might work. I'm only throwing that in as a couple of examples of what I've heard subordinates do to overcome this professional distance uh, that is often implicitly in the relationship. Yeah, as we said before, that idea of having a, that professional distance or not making friends. Um, and so striking that balance so that there's a relationship of trust, which doesn't mean, as you said, an intimate relationship, but it's a relationship of trust and safety. And, you know, we know that folks watch their bosses very carefully for consistency in behavior, and so it sounds like the boss would need to be pretty careful and pristine and and really, as we said earlier, thoughtful about how he or she responds pretty much all the time. So coming from that position of, I know I need you, I know I need to be humble, and it's genuine, seems to be a a longer range, a longer-term approach. Would you agree with that? I think it's a longer-term approach with without insight we get locked into the notion that the boss has to know the answer but maybe all that needs to happen is someone saying to the boss why do you always need to know the answer is that really essential to your job that could be a friendly consultant it could even be a subordinate uh, to to sort of break the spell you know, we we are captured by, by cultural norms, and one of those norms is the boss should always know the answer. And somewhere along the line, someone has to, like with the Wizard of Oz, pull aside the curtain and say, uh, hey, you know, you don't need to know, always know the answer. You've got a lot of helpers around you who will help you formulate the answer. It's an inside issue as much as anything. And certainly, you know, it's uh, those of us who train coaches, we encourage um, coaches to ask, 
questions we don't know the answer to. So leaders who have coaches would hopefully have that experience of the, being asked questions from a place of curiosity, really not knowing, right? Because when we know, it limits what's possible. When we don't know, I guess anything's possible. So, um, so I'm curious then um, about feedback. Is there a way to offer feedback from a place of humble inquiry? So if I have feedback for someone who works for me, can I approach that from an inquiry perspective or does that work better from a telling perspective? Well, it, it depends on, on whether we use an accurate definition of feedback or not. Uh, feedback is supposed to be information relative to a goal that is trying to be accomplished. You know, the rocket is on its way. Engineering would define feedback as information whether the rocket is on course or not. So giving, say, feedback to a boss depends entirely on what the boss's goal is. So unilaterally just saying to the boss, if you're a consultant or a coach, let me give you some feedback is useless because it's likely to fall on deaf ears because we don't know whether it connects to anything that the, that the recipient is trying to do. But the, the feedback that's in the context of what are you trying to do, and I'll tell you whether you're getting there or not, that becomes extremely useful. So it leads to the, the humble inquiry question of when somebody is in the middle of, of spouting off about something, a good question might be, well, let's review what is it exactly you're trying to do. What are you trying to do? Where are you trying to get? When people call me up and say, I want to do a, an engagement survey with my employees or I want to do a culture survey, can you help me? The best question I can really ask is, well, what are you trying to do? Where are you trying to get? What problem is motivating you? Rather than saying, for example, I could say, well, as feedback, I could say, well, you know, I don't believe surveys are the right way to do this. That, that could be very important feedback, but it would be out of line until I know why the person even thought of a survey. Maybe it's just because somebody said surveys is the way to do it or, or, or a, uh, a culture assessment or whatever. The important thing is for me to know where they're trying to get before mm-hmm. I provide feedback playing the role of the coach now or the consultant or even the subordinate could ask the boss, where are we trying to go, boss, before I can really tell you what's going on. Great. So where are we trying to go before I answer the question to make sure I'm clear on what the goal is and and offer feedback that supports you in accomplishing your goal? We're going to head into a break in just a minute. Um, And so when we come back, I would love to hear about uh, any more about Humble Inquiry, and then your next project would be delightful to hear about. Be happy to talk about it.
whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Founded in 2012, the Institute for Transformational Leadership, ITL, is an international center for inquiry, experiential education, and research about leadership in the 21st century. Our mission is to develop worldwide communities of transformational leaders and leadership coaches who are dedicated to engaging and providing the leadership needed for a more sustainable and compassionate future. We currently offer two cohort-based certificate programs, the ICF Accredited Certificate in Leadership Coaching and the Executive Certificate in Transformational Leadership. We also offer a range of ICF-certified Advanced Coach Education Master Courses for experienced leadership coaches. For more information about our programs and how to apply, visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. Email itlprograms at georgetown.edu or call 202-687-7000. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Inside Transformational Leadership, produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please send an email to itlprograms at georgetown.edu. Here again is your host, Kate Ebner. Welcome back to Inside Transformational Leadership. This is your guest host, Beth Greenland. We're talking with thought leader, teacher, and author, Dr. Edgar Schein, about his recent book, Humble Inquiry. And before the break, um, I asked Dr. Shine if he could maybe share with us what his plans are for future books. You have a couple of books in mind. Is that right, Dr. Shine? Uh, that's right. One that's uh, in the works right now and one that's uh, on the, uh, in, in the planning stage. Uh, it, it all goes back to uh, my own uh, necessary discovery of, uh, of humility uh, when I first became a, a consultant, which now goes back a very long time ago, 30, 40 years ago, I discovered that uh, telling people what to do, making recommendations, doing a diagnosis, and then saying, here's, here's what I recommend you do, just plain wasn't working in complex human problems. That might work when you're trying to f- fix something that's technical, but it, it does not work in the complex space of, of human organizational problems. So this uh, next book, which will be called Humble Consulting, is, is bringing the old process consultation idea forward to saying that really the essence of being a coach or a consultant or a helper 
is to build a personal relationship from the moment of first contact. And that's what might strike people as really different, that this is not something you you slowly work your way into. It's something that uh, if you have the right attitude, uh, you you begin from the first immediate thing that you say to the potential client who may have written you a letter or with whom you're having lunch or who's on the phone. So the very first response I make is intended to start building a what I'm calling a level two relationship, where level one is being a stranger to each other and maintaining professional distance. Level two is building a personal working relationship. And in this humble consulting book, I'm saying that's not only necessary, but it begins with the very first thing I say in response to whatever the potential client is saying. And then I build upon that by trying to develop trust and openness between the client and me. Because if I don't find out what's really worrying the client, not necessarily what he or she initially said on the phone, but what's really behind their question, why do they want to? Uh, wor- why are they worried about engagement uh, of their employees? Why are they calling a consultant at all? If I don't find that out, I can't possibly be helpful. So to find out, I have to begin to build that relationship immediately. And so this humble consulting book really says, you know, if you want to be a helper, build that attitude and start doing it from the moment you encounter the client. There is no period of diagnosis. There is no recommendation. It's all an integral process that begins from the very first interaction. So the very first interaction of, it sounds like leveling the playing field so the status difference isn't there, the consultant doesn't come in as the expert saying, well, I know, just get out of my way so I can tell you what to do, but to have a kind of a real curious going on for you and your organization so I can be sure that whatever help I can offer you is really doing the right thing. Is that is that it? You you got it, and uh, it it hinges on what you might think of as the the three C's, uh, where the ma- the main C is curiosity. If you're not curious, don't be in the helping business, hmm. because uh, only with curiosity will you find out what kind of help you can give. The second C is uh, commitment to being a helper. It's, it's really something that is not automatic for a lot of people. It's something that you have to decide you want to be and that's motivational. And the third C is caring. I have to care for the other person who's, who's on the line or who's trying to get some help from me. And that caring has to show up in the tone of my voice, in the kinds of questions I ask, uh, it's it's this attitude that combines these three C's, commitment, curiosity, and caring. And if that isn't there in the boss or in the helper, 
uh, the subordinate or the client really won't open up, won't develop trust. Yeah, it's very different from the expert, you know, almost an arrogant perspective, as I, as we said, of, of coming in and, and um, feeling like I know and I'm going to tell you. So curiosity, commitment, and caring. And you're suggesting that, that consultants and others see consultants need to be genuinely curious, genuinely committed to the success of the client, and genuinely caring in order for the consulting relationship to really work. Absolutely, and I I like the phrase leveling the playing field because the consultant who says, well, I'll come in and do do a diagnosis, I'll interview everybody and I'll, I'll tell you what's really going on and then I make a recommendation, that is elevating the consultant's expert status. It's implying that the consultant has mysterious techniques of diagnosis and uh, and thinking that uh, that only uh, only the consultant can provide, whereas the humble consulting attitude says, uh, "I can help you, but all all our thinking about the problem." And all our figuring out what to do is going to have to be a joint problem with you. You know, you, the client, really own the problem. I don't. And so I can help you figure out what to do, but I can't, I'm not walking in your shoes, so I'll never know enough about you or your culture or your personality to have the arrogance to tell you what to do. All I can do is work with you, and together we can make what uh, what I'm calling in the book an adaptive move. Instead of a, a solution to the problem, if I have a level of trust with the client and we're working on what, how do we get through this complex situation that we've suddenly discovered... We don't look for a a solution. We look for what could we do next that might ameliorate the problem. The reason for putting it that way is that the problems today are so complex and so rapidly changing that having the idea of a solution is itself uh, a, a logical mistake because everything we do, every move we make, will change the situation even as the environment is changing around us. So problem solving becomes a series of adaptive moves rather than some kind of master plan based on some recommendations. So I love that adaptive move. And that sounds then like the consultant and the client together have to be fluid and flexible. It's emergent to be able to trust what they know, trust what they see, invite other people in, but always be able to kind of read what's and then to engage in that, or at least try that next right thing and see if that works. So it's, so being adaptive and, and really trusting their own <coughs> knowing, and I guess they're not knowing. Again, it, it has with recognizing that, that problems of the sort that consultants nowadays deal with and that managers encounter 
are are not simple technical problems that lend themselves to solutions. I'm not suggesting that this kind of relationship is necessary between you and the auto mechanic. The auto mechanic knows how your engine works, and it wouldn't do him or her much good to involve me in the discussion of what to do with the complex engines that we see in our cars today. However, if my problem is how to get uh, to another city and there are many roads available and uh, uh, we don't know where all the uh, repairs are and uh, I'm trying to help a client uh, get to that other city in an efficient way, then I have to honor the fact that the client's needs, how fast he likes to drive, uh, what kinds of stops he needs to make, all those things become crucial to figuring out whether we should go down Route 1 or or Route 2. And so we make an adaptive move. The complexity is out there in the world, and it's forcing us into new kinds of problem-solving methods and that's in turn forcing us to think about adaptive moves rather than uh, elaborate solutions. Uh huh. And and your next book will be um, humble leadership. Did I understand that correctly? After the humble consulting. Yes, I. Uh, the real target, as we began this discussion, of course, is not how to be a better consultant. <laughs> but how to improve the world through being a better leader. And I think that somehow I have to figure out, and I'm working on this uh, with my son, who will be, uh, who comes out of high-tech marketing and uh, is beginning, beginning to be more interested in the complexity of what goes on out here in Silicon Valley where, uh, where I'm now re- retired and where we see complexity in all its many forms, that we really have to figure out a way to make this argument uh, coherent to the people who are bosses and leaders and entrepreneurs uh, to begin at least on paper to make the statement that you are living in a different kind of world, uh, a more rapid-moving world, and therefore, here's how you should think about it uh, and um, begin to develop this attitude of humble inquiry and, uh, and a different way of, of uh, thinking about problem solution into adaptive moves. Hmm. It sounds fascinating and very, very important. Um, so I really wish you all the best of luck with your two books and how delightful you'll be working with your son. So thank you so very much, Dr. Shine. It's, uh, as I say, just delightful to have this conversation with you. And I would like to thank you all for listening. This is Inside Transformational Leadership, sponsored by Georgetown's Institute for Transformational Leadership. We will be back next week with another great conversation about leading in the 21st century. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us this week on Inside Transformational Leadership. 
Please tune in for another edition with your host, Kate Ebner, next Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our programs, please visit scs.georgetown.edu forward slash ITL. We'll talk again next week.